The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Opus Energy Insights on Barron's Live. I'm Denton Sincrograna, Chief Oil Analyst at Opus, a Dow Jones company. And joining me today is my colleague, Kathy Hall, Executive Director of Global Petrochemical Products at Opus. It's a mouthful. Welcome, Kathy, and thank you for joining us on Barron's Live. Oh, thanks so much. It's great to be here. So a lot of the markets we cover here at Opus are almost like niche markets. And I almost consider petrochemicals a niche within a niche. Uh, It lies between two major commodities, natural gas and crude oil. Uh, Those are their major feedstocks. But can you break down real quick, what are the differences between the two and how does the price in crude and the price in natural gas impact the petrochemical markets? Sure. Uh, Yeah, I'm fascinated with petrochemical and plastic markets and have been for decades. Um, I like the relatability that they have to our world, you know, that everywhere I look around, I can see them in action, really. But they're... um, they sprang from the refining industry, really, and the technologies developed by refining companies. And then as those companies got into natural gas processing, that, uh, that really the, the technology-driven movements to create things such as plastics and coatings and, and different things like that really sit petrochemicals in a place where they are between crude oil and natural gas. So they're affected by both prices, of course, but the industries have become, I know in a larger sense, they're regarded as as niche industries, but they've become so large that they have their own fundamentals in that there could be a shortage of a chemical. So it really wouldn't matter what crude oil was doing, for example. Okay, okay. So really it's not as big of a deal. So say for example, a refinery can tilt their yield to maybe make more diesel or more gasoline, depending on on price. Do petrochemical facilities have those abilities as well? Maybe make more of one type of plastic versus a different type? Yeah, there's certainly um, facilities that have what you would call swing capacity for different types of chemicals or grades of plastic. But with regard to refining, I think that there are a one of the neat things I think about petrochemicals is that some of them do have a use in the fuel pool, in the gasoline blend stock pool. But as you know, with gasoline, that this can be seasonal depending on what RVP season, what octane you're using, what the economics are are for. But when you're talking about a petrochemical in the gasoline pool, they always have another use. So we're also looking at, are we competing with a plastic or ink or, you know, a coating or something else that's also pulling that market in a different fundamental direction. So that's where certainly, you know, when oil is negative or $150, chemicals do react automatically. But there are times that we could see, you know, oil's up a dollar and chemicals are down. Why is that? Well, maybe, you know, we're working off a supply chain thing Hmm. that it can, it can be, uh, it's not necessarily, in lockstep. And that's why these markets have developed their own personalities as commodities and they're traded independently 
of energy in, in a lot of cases. Gotcha. So what are some of those chemicals that come out of the out of the refining process? One and two, what are the names of the ones that go into the gasoline blending pool? Sure. Well, refineries, by and large, like I say, that was really the birthplace of the petrochemical industry. And you still see the largest refiners are the largest petrochemical companies. So there's that segment there. And then a lot of refineries sit on land that also has chemical complexes on them. So uh, so with respect to chemicals that are directly produced in the refining process, we've got what we call aromatics. Aromatic chemicals are named that because of their distinctive smell. And these include benzene, toluene, xylene. They all have uses in the gasoline pool. Now you can also make a chemical called propylene, a very versatile chemical that is also a building block for plastics and solvents and lots of chemicals. But you can also make propylene in addition to at the refinery, you can upgrade that from the refinery or make it at a separate on-purpose type of unit in several different ways. And these chemical units, like I say, they will usually sit adjacent to a refinery in many cases. So that's where you have these massive, these massive manufacturing complexes, like um, you'll see behind me is a map. It's of every ethylene plant in, um, in Texas and Louisiana. That's where more than 90% of the chemical plants are um, are situated in terms of mass complexes and they are near refineries. So Mont Bellevue, Texas, for example, Texas, mm -hmm. when a weather event hits Texas, it knocks out a lot of refineries and a lot of chemical plants. So there is that. Uh, so in terms of the on-purpose chemicals that have plants and complexes sprung up around them, the building blocks there are ethylene and propylene. And from those, you can make primarily the, the main use for those is plastics, polyethylene, polypropylene, mm -hmm. right? It goes to follow. But um, you can also make lots of other chemicals that are used in you know, personal care, cosmetics, mm -hmm. you know, different different types of uses there. But really with, with those chemicals, the ethylene, propylene, and benzene, Plastics demand is a primary driver for those building block markets. And, you know, just going back to the point that your major oil, in many cases, is your major chemical, that when you're talking about the executive level of those companies, yes, they know the price of crude oil. They also know the price of ethylene. You know, that's it's a very important thing, much like with crude oil. I know the price of crude oil, but what am I going to do with crude oil myself? It's an indicator. It's a very important indicator. So ethylene itself is a gas. What are we doing with it? Me, nothing. But you know, when right. you're when you're in that market, it's everything. Gotcha. And, and you mentioned, you know, this the the C level, the the executives. And a couple of years ago, Shell, uh, as part of their climate goals, said that they were going to focus less on say standalone refineries, mm -hmm. and concentrate more on what they refer to as parks. Yeah. Uh, these are facilities where you have a refinery, a traditional refinery, and a petrochemical facility kind of integrated with one another. What are the advantages to operating that way? Well, I think that, um, that everyone is always looking at optionality. So mm -hmm. on one hand, maybe optionality looks like having sites spread out all over the place, but in another sense, consolidating your assets into a, 
a large mega location, it eliminates your um, your exposure to needing infrastructure. Some, you know, when your infrastructure is on site, that's an option that you can use. You can always truck in or pipe in what you want, but you don't necessarily always need to. You can share energy costs. You can share feedstocks. It's, um, you know, it's a different type of decision with respect to the chemicals that you make gasoline with. If your refinery is on site, then should we move this from, you know, say convent to this or this to that? It's all there on site. That said, your vulnerability for a weather event or power outage, of course, you know, you you risk the entire site. But I think that, um, you know, it's a, it's a little bit maybe comparable to like a shopping mall that you've got everything there. So rather than go all over the state of Texas to get your plasticizers, your plastics, your acetone, what if it's all there? It's right. all there. Yeah, great benefit. So. Talk a little bit about breaking down the differences between between the two petrochemical facilities and, and, and traditional refineries. Talk a little bit about gasoline blending. Let's move on to the big one, and that's plastics. Uh, yeah, I think plastics, it's a broad brush stroke right there. We could probably have an entire, one entire segment on plastics alone, but as a standalone you know, podcast. But what are some of the categories that the audience uh, might be interested in and how are those used in the various uh, segments of the economy of the economy? Sure. Thank you. I mean, plastics are ubiquitous. They're, you know, so it's akin to transportation or heating fuels. It's everywhere. And, um, you know, to say you can't get away from it, you can. You can go off the grid. You can live in a world without plastics. But plastics have, uh, you know, just those innovations have made our lives so convenient that um, what I think, you know, is always interesting about plastics is that demand in some, I look at it in market segments and industries, demand into the medical field is, you know, it's a little bit recession proof, I think that, but then, you know, you also have much like, you know, Dent, you know, with transportation fuels, what we've seen, you and I and the rest of the world in the past three years, right? Um, that, you know, that much like transportation fuels, you have home goods. So what we saw in petrochemicals that like fuels in a lot of different markets, uh, the markets for decades in their segments have gotten used to a cyclicality that, you know, auto sales are up during this time of the year and toy sales are up during this time of the year. And then you're mindful of different things like um, a plastic bag ban in this part of the world or where is the World Cup being held? Because they're going to need a million plastic bottles of something like water, right? So mm -hmm. there's different things that we're always watching. And then three years ago, you know, everything stopped, right? We, we hit record lows everywhere. And then slowly, things like, um, you know, if you were making a product that that just fell out of favor, nobody was buying certain things at the start of, lockdowns around the world, but uh, personal protective equipment was a market nobody knew we really needed. And when mm -hmm. we needed it, it was plastic. And the same thing with disposable plastic that I, you know, I, I know that there's been worldwide movements to eliminate use of different disposable plastics. And that's, you know, that's certainly an environmental uh, focused movement, but 
when the when the rubber hit the road, as it were, in terms of germs, disposable plastic was already there. So that demand was one zoom it, it that took off and different things like a, a, you know again i speak to the cyclical nature of things that um the construction market that um the construction market obviously peaks when the weather is best you know so yeah. um you know it's difficult to put pipes underground when the ground is frozen this is a pretty simple fundamental but when you know again looking at the past 3 years that um i think that once the reality at least for me and probably for a lot of people, when the reality hit around May, we might be here all summer. How many home improvement projects began? Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that upped the use of plastic pipe, that upped the use of uh, people buying appliances, people buying plastic decking, starting a garden with container gardens. So you saw this real demand surge that I don't think anybody really expected to be as big as it was, but it lasted so long that what we saw in chemicals is it didn't abate at the end of 2020. It kept going because it went right into the next cycle. So what we saw was just an, an unending price increase. And so many sectors did very, very well if they were in the selling position, you know, so if you were in a position where you had the plastic, you could make the stuff, you could sell the stuff, good for you. And if at some point you ran out of plastic, let's say you were making plastic pipe and you needed more, you had to pay whatever you had to pay because we, there was a shortage of plastic pipe around the world. And that meant there was a, sh a shortage of PVC and polyethylene around the world. And that meant that there was a shortage of ethylene. So that's what brings it back to that bellwether of, when ethylene prices shot up, what are we really looking at? So again, when you're following sectors, you will, you know, you seeing a demand in the appliance sector, of course, how many times are we buying the appliance each year, right? right. But seeing, seeing other types of demand come and go, at some point, people did begin buying cars again. And as you saw on fuels, they did leave the house. And you know, and, and then when they left the house, they would go to concerts and sports came back. And what do you do with these events? You're using plastic utensils and bottles of water. And so that was that was coming back as well. But, you know, in the background of so much of this, as we saw in so many products and commodities, we all learned a lot about the supply chain. Right. So it so we could have the lowest cost. We could have the most product. If you couldn't get it somewhere, that was that became its own fundamental. So your freight costs were pricing out so many people and making certain sectors unprofitable. And I think that this came home to roost on the consumer level when you couldn't, as a consumer, you couldn't get certain items. And you're like, what do you mean I can't get those sneakers? And maybe it's because the plasticizers were held up at a port that you didn't even know had a problem. Never mind what are plasticizers used in sneakers. I want my sneakers. Rolling it back. And then if you're looking at it in an equity sense, well, how are the the how's the shoe industry doing with this plasticizer situation? Or, you know, something akin to that. I feel like a lot of things were laid bare by necessity during the past three years. And as you know. You may have actually taught me this, that the best uh, comparable indicator is 2019. Like we yep. can we can go on about year over year, 
last year and the year before and the year before not such not such a perfect indicator so when we're looking to return to normal we're looking to return to 2019 fundamentals right right and i remember you know you talk about uh people wanting to do home improvement projects and i remember when we were all stuck at home in 2020 people looking out their window and saying oh boy i need to do something with this backyard so uh remember that quite well but it is uh, twelve fifteen Eastern, and I'd like to remind everyone that the the uh, please submit questions for the Q and A segment. So, uh, one thing that's on really everyone's minds is interest rates. Uh, yes. Are there yes. any particular se sectors that use quite a bit of plastic that are that are more sensitive, say, to interest rate hikes than than others? Yes, I mean I think every commodity, of course, is sensitive to it, but construction. Construction is plastic. Well, it's metal intense, it's concrete intense, but it's plastic intense. And that's where, to your point, Denton, building a new backyard in 2020 took a lot. Of, it You weren't the only one, right? We uh, There was a surge, an absolute surge. But at the same time, you know, there's a construction company is a new construction and, you know, vacation homes and home improvements and all this stuff. Everybody's competing for the same pipes. All the pipe meters or pipe makers are competing for the same PVC and polyethylene. All of those people are competing for the same ethylene. So, again, your supply chain is rolling up through that. And that's where crude and natural gas, of course, are important, but they weren't as important as if you had the plastic pipe, you win. You could charge what you wanted during that time. During that time. But, um, you know, again, looking for uh, when the interest rates started going up, this was last summer, and it was mm -hmm. like, uh-oh. Gradually, not only did you have people not building new decks again, right? Not buying, you know, like refrigerators. How many are you buying in a year? Yeah. How many new decks you put on, right? So that demand was not there this time around. And in, and so pipes, well, pipes, you're always going to use pipes. So this is not a temporary thing. You need them to build and, you know, water and cables and all this stuff. But if construction itself slows, well, companies that, I mean, no, I'm no one specific is coming to mind, but in that sector during 2020, if you found yourself not being able to get pipes and you were out of luck and you had to pay a high price in 2021 and early 2022, you, you were doubling your orders, right? Mm -hmm. Won't get fooled again. Yeah. And then the interest rates are coming up and jobs are, the, the jobs are getting delayed or even canceled. Well, you have all these pipes. So <laughs> at that point you are at the pipe, at the plastic pipe level, you are the beginning of the supply overhang. And this is backing up. I'm good. I don't need any pipes for this month. And then the person making the plastic. Well, I guess we don't need, we're not going to serve them this month. This is backing up. And suddenly, suddenly we're at the refinery again. Mm -hmm. Oh, we don't need any extra propylene, I guess, or ethylene, you know. So that's right. how it, it doesn't happen immediately. But, you know, there are certain fundamentals that are true in plastics, for example, the uh, the gift giving season, the gift giving mm -hmm. season. That's um, you know that manufacturing takes place in the second and third quarter. So you know, so if there's a if there's a demand surge for, I don't, uh, you know, a home entertainment consoles and, and games and stuff, 
that bears out in July. So at the point where we're seeing this on general news of, I can't find this game or something in November, you're not gonna, it, you know, it's, it would have taken you. And that's where, you know, a lockdown at a port in another part of the world somehow affected your, your own holiday shopping. But, you know, when it came to, to the construction industry, the creep started last summer. And like I say, by the end of the year, it was backed up and the end of the year for most companies, especially anybody in materials who has inventory, that's when you typically run your inventory down. Sure. So you're running a lot of inventory down. So the idea of, of not, you know, of uh, the orders not continuing really extended quite a bit right into the new year. And then the, you know, the world waits for uh, the end of the Lunar New Year to, to get a gauge on what demand in Asia is really going to bring us. So it's not necessarily, hey, it's January, let's start the plant back up again. It's being a little cautious, saying, let's wait until we see what Asia is doing. And um, demand has improved. I think demand has definitely improved from, you know, November, December. It's not it's not quite the safety net that a lot of plastic commodity markets would like to see, but it's, um, you know, it's moving, it, it's slowly moving higher. So with that being said, do we have a glut of plastics and pipe right now? In some segments, I think the inventory is still being worked off, but we have seen that what, what we've seen at Opus um my my colleagues in our plastic division, David Barry and Donna Todd, tell me that the plastic plants themselves are running at higher rates in January than they have in many months. And that is a sign that the, if there had been a glut, that there are new orders looking for this material. So mm -hmm. I think that I also think January is a safe time to, to ramp up your rates because you're not facing an end of the year uh, inventory valuation situation but at the same time the orders must be there for these plants to already begin you know in january and february increasing their rates from some some uh relatively low rates that you know you we've seen a lot of executives talk about in the second half of last year in their earnings reports like yeah you know we had to temper the the operating rates to match demand and they did that so now now i think they're coming back a little bit again it's not it's it's not a, a bull market or a runaway market by any means, but it's certainly not. I don't think it's as gloomy for plastics as uh, maybe in, in certain other sectors. But, you know, the warm weather is upon us. So construction, driving, similar type of demand um, curves on those. It should all start to pick up. So uh, earlier this week, Barron's had an article, and if anyone hasn't read it, I suggest you do, because it was completely fascinating about new plastic versus recycled plastics. Uh, one of the things that caught my eye is some of the some of the new technologies, and they seem to be in their embryonic states, if you will, uh, The kit that's chemical recycling. How long do you think before that becomes a more mature uh, kind of process? Yeah, that's the multi-million dollar question, right? <laughs> but um, but certainly, you know, it's been um, recycling itself, especially of plastics, is is nothing new. It's uh, it's been going on for you know at least since the 1970s in this country. But it's the commoditization. It's really if recycling was um, 
you know, what they call in business, a nice to have. Now it's a need to have. Mm -hmm. And the mandates that have come out from either a governmental level or a retail level saying your, your products, our products in our retail store must contain this percentage of recycled material. That's really created an industry that is quickly commoditizing itself. Mm -hmm. And to that, the, um, we, we saw during all the lockdowns, more trash than ever. You know, I did my part, but the infrastructure wasn't there. So that's where I think you saw a lot of really grim statistics of recycling is down to, you know, less than 10%. Well, we're making four times as much trash with the same exact amount of sorting facilities. So it, it goes to follow that you can't, you know, it was uh, overwhelming the infrastructure. So anyway, I think that the investments into that sector technology wise like you say learning to make things that can be used in the plastics markets and and uh you know and even fuel markets from non-fossil sources including mm -hmm. plastic trash biomass things like that those investments are they're they're starting to come you know um a, a common phrase in the industries and friends i have in these industries is you know it's a, it's a teaspoon in the ocean right now, but it's coming and they're starting to commoditize as well. A lot of this that I think, um, you know, a lot of it is gradual where you're blending You're you know, you can take this recycled content, blend it into your, hmm. your other types of plastic. And then over the years, increase that content. If, you know, if possible, there's always going to be an element of, you know, safety first. I mean, you're, you're always going to look for the integrity of the plastic to, uh, to perform a certain way, of course, you know, with respect to medical devices that, you know, you don't, you want them to perform a certain way and, and whatnot. So I don't think anything is really ever going to be compromised by introducing a, a lesser quality of plastic, but the recycled movement, and as you say, with the, with what's called chemical recycling, turning trash plastic into things that can be used to make other chemicals, in fact, is, uh, it, you know, these are all, um, they're all innovative ways to solve a problem, which is how the plastics industry itself began 100 years ago. Right. So one last one before we get into some of the Q&A here, but right now, short term, what are you watching closely in the petrochemical sector? Sure. Well, I think that interest on the I look at things supply demand on the demand side. Um, certainly, you know, interest rates and um, I, you know, things like I know you and I have talked about events, the Olympics. You know, like mm -hmm. th that. This can be when it, when a when an event, a tour, a sports season is canceled. It's a big problem for all the people with the plastic bottles and the plastic lanyards and whatnot. But, you know, so watching that, that things on the demand side are going as you expect. It's really what it's about, right? Managing expectations on the su supply side. You can watch the weather. <laughs> Good luck. But <laughs> to look at all the geopolitical things, um, you know, with a real critical eye to the business effect of them, to, you know, something that, I, I would think that for most of my career, it's been interesting what the ports in Asia are doing. But now I know if they're open or not, because if if decisions get made, in, be it, you know, due to a, a lockdown or uh, any other external force where things can infrastructure could change 
quickly. And we saw this in Europe with trains and, and different, you know, aspects there. So really just being mindful, not of, you know, not just what's happening internationally, but being going that little extra step of saying, well, what's the part that affects this industry that I'm really interested in? And, um, you know, and seeing how, what you're watching, who's positioned, how, you know, for example, if a, if a particular manufacturer of, of anything from, you know, packaging to widgets or, you know, sunglasses or pens, if they're highly dependent on something internationally and have, it turns out maybe almost no domestic options, they have a vulnerability that maybe a competitor right there in their sector is like, no, we have an option in Canada, which is different than being dependent on a, on, you know, say the Asia market, but the Asia market might give them a big competitive edge price-wise. So, so those are the sorts of things that for me, watching infrastructure on the supply side, weather on the supply side, and factors on the downstream side of really consumer behaviors. You know, again, if people, I watch, well, I read everything you write, Denton. I mean, what, <laughs> you know, what transportation trends are, what are jet fuel consumption trends? What are motor transportation trends? If people are leaving the house, they're going somewhere where they're probably going to have a bottle of water, you know, and, um, or they're going to buy something that has plastic in it. And, um, you know, and so what does that really mean? Because again, I think that the home improvement market had a big surge and you're not going to have that, you know, that's not a real regular surge. So, uh, so you're really, I think that there's, um, on the demand side, that there's just more attention to um, to disposable plastic in that sense as the world gets out there more in force. We see it in our own industry. Conferences are back. And thousands of people at conferences are wearing a plastic lanyard. So, you know, who's making that lanyard? That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So get into some of the audience questions here. And this one is from Chris. So he's curious about the future outlook for PET plastics as an ESG compliant, ESG preferred material for food packaging. Uh, and also any commentary on the chemical inputs for PET plastics in terms of supply and demand, supply chain sourcing and cost outlooks and forecasts. It's a lot. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, um, well, you know, first of all, First of all, to speak to the the ESG thing, I know, as you say, Denton, we can we can have a whole separate series on that. But um, what I think is is nice is how the recycled plastics market is commoditizing. I think pretty harmoniously with the producers of what we'll call original plastic, also known as virgin plastic, right? Um, that food standards. That's nothing new to a PET producer, right? So when you're a recycled PET producer, if you're also already in that space with original made PET, you understand what's required for the food grade. You understand um, what you're, anything down to distribution channels, you know? So I think that um, a mixture of, in terms of companies, producers, consumers, people that are, you know, in these markets, the blending of, an, an old guard, a new guard is really beneficial. You have fresh new ideas, but you also have an experienced industry who understands the seriousness of food grade, medical grade, that, you know, this is, um, 
you know, the, the real impact and really the liability that you take on when you enter those markets. So that said, PET is a, is a very interesting plastic because polyethylene and polypropylene and polystyrene, right? The last mm -hmm. part of the word is where they come from, right? Ethylene, polyethylene, right? PET actually comes from a xylenes. So xylenes, which starts with a X, xylenes are a market that comes from uh, aromatics. So right. you do have mixed xylenes, do have a gasoline use. They can trade relative to RBOB, right? Gasoline. Yep. They have that, that they're, you know, they're considered to be a refined chemical or a chemical at the refinery. From this, mm -hmm. you can make all these esoteric things, paraxylene and ethylene glycol. And at the end of this, one of its uses along that chain, one is antifreeze. Another one is polyester. So when you get into polyester filaments, PET bottles, you're actually showing um, an exposure up into that xylenes and aromatics chain. You will blend some ethylene. It's a, it's a pretty involved supply chain and ethylene gets blended into it at some point, but it's not as straightforward as a classic simple polymers market of polypropylene, propylene. Mm. It really taking that journey from aromatics through to the PET chain is a, is a real interesting one with a lot of nuance along the way. Gotcha. Gotcha. So here's one from Keith. And being that we're on the one year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you can imagine what this question is. What kind of impact has the war in Ukraine had on chemical producers? Has demand been up or down, profits up or down? Uh, what do you see there, Kathy? Well, I think that um, obviously... I think the whole world saw what energy prices did and chemicals are obviously very vulnerable to electricity and natural gas prices. There were certain infrastructure disruptions, but what, um, what I see as the biggest impact, my own personal opinion is the longer impact that um, I was in, excuse me, I was in Europe last summer talking with, some of the producers there that seem to um, they seem to pivot pretty quickly. That if they were dependent upon Russian energy or infrastructure or various Eastern European dependencies, and quickly pivoting to the Middle East, quickly pivoting to the U.S. as their their source or their their answer. I'm saying that was pretty quick. And in a lot of cases, uh, what we what we'd hear. And we'd even see this in the news, a project gets announced and, you know, less than a year later, it's happening. And a lot of these were already there, meaning if there is a situation with our natural gas supply, here is our $10 billion plan. So they didn't need to make a plan. They needed to get the plan approved and go into action. That's what I think the longer term is, is looking like as a result of this event and I think in a lot of cases, they won't go back. Um, but what we saw during the year of 2022, I mean, you know, last summer, it was for depending on what part of the supply chain, obviously, a high price means a great thing for one person and a terrible thing for another person in the market. But um, but by and large, anywhere you looked over the summer, you had um, you had different lockdowns occurring all over again in Asia. You had the situation in Europe that was just absolutely 
you know, unsteady, volatile, unsustainable, you know, really creating a lot of um, at the moment panic for supply security. And that creates, you know, bidding war and prices were running up and and whatnot. And then in the in the US, the US is coming to the rescue with all these, all this product that they can send to Europe. And then these interest rates are coming. So at some point, you know, I feel like in June, it was feeling a little weird. And in July, it was like, oh, no. And, you know, so we were progressing, like everywhere I'm looking, I'm really not enjoying the answer anywhere. You know, never mind the, the lingering effects of supply chain disruptions that were happening independent of any geopolitical situation or pandemic related movements, you know, but yeah, with respect to Europe, it became the highest priced market in the world and everybody was sending everything they could there. And Europe, you know, Europe can be a high priced region in general for chemicals because sure. it's a, it doesn't have access to that nice cheap chemical feedstock that the U S and the middle East has really been banking on now. So there, there is a, a natural tendency for Europe to be a higher priced market as far as chemicals are concerned with its cost structure, but throw in what was happening with um, the Russia-Ukraine situation. And it just became, it became a place that you could, you could definitely sell your, your products there because they need them. Yeah. So at the end of the day, the U.S., the Middle East, uh, these are places that are, you know, for lack of a better term, blessed with cheap natural gas. So they're always going to have at least a little bit of an advantage, especially compared to Europe. Yeah. So, but I think that's all the time we have for now. So, Kathy, thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thank you to the audience for tuning in. And please, jo please join Barron's Live again on Monday. Barron's Senior Managing Editor, Lauren R. Rubin, and Deputy Editor, Bev Levitson, talk with Jay Jacobs, U.S. Head of Thematics and Active Equity ETFs at BlackRock. Uh, about the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks, and the ins and outs of thematic investing. And join me, uh, Denton Sigrana, on March 24th for the next Opus Energy Insights segment on Barron's Live, where Tom Close and I, you may remember him from last month, uh, give a preview of the summer driving season. So everyone, thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next time. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.